Cannonball, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, host of Cannonball, one of the hosts of Cannonball, and I'm here as always with my co-host and friend, Dean of the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences, Chuck Ryback. How's it going, Chuck? It is going dazzling. It's still nice outside. My pets are fed. How are you doing? I am doing well. Yes, it is still nice outside. That hasn't changed. I am. I live in a basement now, so I actually oh. don't know if it's nice out anymore. Um, I don't have a window, but uh, it feels like it must be nice out. I believe you. I guess let's put it that way. But, Let me be your ambassador to the outdoors. <laughs> I, I am looking out of windows right now, and it's great. You're a, you're lucky. We my wife and I just changed offices. I am now in the basement, which means. Um, uh, which means it's easier to focus sometimes, I guess. It's also really cold and there are spiders. So that, wow. yeah, I know. We I, should I, talk been, about this again when we do our allegory of the cave episode. Yes. <laughs> I, I feel compelled to just keep Mike Draney, uh, our, our biologist friend, our arachnologist friend on speed dial. So I can just send him pictures of the spiders I encounter to find out if they're safe. So interdisciplinarity, man. I really, yes. I like what you're up to there. Exactly. So, all right. So we are, uh, obviously we are back with our conversation with Renee Edinger, this time talking about the great works that inspired her. Uh, by way of reminder, Renee graduated in 2002 from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee with a master's degree in library and information sciences. She currently serves as the assistant library director for research and outreach services at UW-Green Bay, where she oversees the information literacy program. Her professional interests include critical librarianship, digital literacy, and information ethics. She's also co-chairing this year's Common Cause Conference on Truth, Information, and Misinformation, and Democracy. Welcome back, Renee. How's it going? Good, really good. It's nice to be back for episode two. Excellent. I'm happy to have you here. So there are there are two, I want to lay the, the, the groundwork a little bit. One is because I'm really interested in the stuff that inspired you, and so um, you know, in the, the last episode, you said, um, you mentioned loving the library when you were young. And I've had, I have two thoughts about this that I wanted to share. One is, um, and I'm sure you've seen like the memes going around or, or, or posts, viral posts about how libraries are, are some of the few places in America that you can exist without having to spend money, right? Without there being, that, that you are allowed into a library for free that you can stay there without being harassed or without being encouraged to buy anything, unlike a lot of other places in America. And so there is something about that, it being a welcoming space. But I also, the other thing I wanna say, so I'm reading a book right now to my son and with my son, and it is, I cannot for the life of me remember the name, but it's about a girl with a physical, uh, she, she was born without arms and she doesn't like to go to lunch. And uh, at school, because kids look at her and she feels uncomfortable. She just moved to this new town. And so she goes to the library uh, instead. And she actually meets some other kids there who have similar uh, concerns as her and that um, are, are not similar to that, but have, um, you know, also don't like to be around other kids like the space that a library provides. And so she's developing these friendships with other kids that she's met, met through that same space. And so it just, it is interesting to me that it, that her friendships developed in the library, this, it being essentially in many ways, a safe space. And I wonder if that resonates with you, if that's something that, that connects, or am I just reading too much into things? 
No, I think that connects just for libraries in general. There's a, a lot of research out there in libraries about how to make our spaces welcoming, how to make sure they're very equal, that everybody feels welcome, that there's a variety of spaces, this kind of concept of the library as your third space. So I don't know if that's um, thing either of you are familiar with that idea, but it's like everyone has two places, like their home and then either work or school, and then you need this third place. So the library is your third place and trying to figure out a way to make the library a, a welcoming place for everyone. But that that's really true. Public libraries too, especially there's a lot of um, uh, social services that just get run out of libraries. Uh, a lot of, gosh, uh, I, a lot of the librarians I follow on social media with a lot of the um, oh social unrest that we've had the past few years, they've been hubs of, you know, for protesters that they go and charge their phone at the library, they eat meals at the library, that they've, you know, really kind of serving this um, third place kind of purpose. Yeah. Well, yeah, I have most of my most vivid memories, I'd say, in my single digits of age are from the library, the Fairfield Public Library. I don't know why it was called Fairfield. It wasn't on Fairfield and I live in Buffalo, New York. But anyway, um, but I, I can still I could describe the entire layout still of the of the place, what it smelled like, what it Felt like I used to ride my bike there all the time, check out too many books, try to ride home with them on my bike and drop some of them in the street. I shouldn't have said that out loud to a librarian, but but yeah, it was a really it was a hub in my life that meant the world to me. It was just fantastic. Chuck, in librarians' efforts to erase information privilege, most of them don't do fines anymore, especially public libraries. So even if, as a child, you damage some books or lose them, it's really unlikely that you're going to get charged for that. So that's burden. okay. A huge yeah. burden just lifted off Good. of my shoulders. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I'm glad I could do that for you. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the things that I would... I want to start because I really am. I want to get to these two works that you you brought up as being really inspirational to you. Um, but I think one of the things I'm I've been thinking about is that I, I would argue that there are a handful of real significant crises facing our our country right now, and maybe and probably globally. And um, and one of them is uh, the absence of information literacy capabilities from, from most people. This, the difficulty people have in knowing what is real and what is not. And, and I, don't, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say it's one of the things that scares me most uh, about the future. Um, and and I, I suspect you share those concerns, Renee, um, and uh, yes. I could be wrong. Um, you know, that I think that this is really alarming. And so I guess I wanted to sort of set the stage. That's why this conference was so important to me. That's why it was so important to me that you be involved. But maybe that's a way of, so the audience knows where we're coming from as we start to talk about these these two works. Um, which one do you want to start with? Uh, let's start with the Stanford study. Okay, let's do it. So yeah, so tell us what about this was, I guess, describe it for people and then tell us what was so important about it. 
Okay, so um, there's a study that the Stanford History Education Group did uh, several years back now. I think the um, actual study was done in 2017, and then it was a, a white paper or working paper, and it then went through the peer review process and was published in 2019. And the Stanford History um, Education Group does a lot of really cool things, but one thing that they focus on is how people encounter information online and how they react and interact, I guess is a better word, with information online. Um, and the study, and I just, you know, I guess I should know it, but uh, the title, Lateral Reading and the Nature of Expertise, Reading Less and Learning More When Evaluating Did digital information. Um, this was really the study that shifted how librarians teach web evaluation. It was just a, it, it like sent shockwaves through the librarian info lit community, right? Like we read this and it was a real game changer in how we talk about evaluating information and the best methods to do that. Um, since this study came out, the Stanford History Education Research Group um, had, had built up this um, civic online reasoning curriculum that can be used in high schools and middle schools. And um, it's, it's really changed how we do web evaluation. So I don't know I, I, if I can talk a little bit about like how the study was set up and like some of the please. results. Yeah, um, please. I'd love to hear that. Okay, cool. So um, it was basically a web evaluation study and they had three groups of participants and the participants were asked to um, evaluate, they had three tasks, three separate tasks. And it was, you know, very traditional research where they were, you know, screen recorded and, you know, voice recorded. They were asked to speak out loud what they were thinking when they, you know, clicked and whatnot. Um, so there were three groups of folks. So let's talk about the three groups. One was 25 Stanford students. So let's, you know, take a beat and think about what Stanford students are like. You know, Stanford is a very exclusive school, 95% rejection rate in the heart of the Silicon Valley. I mean, these are excellent, you know, academically excellent students. Um, one one thing I, I guess I'd like to mention, all of these students uh, self-identified as spending at least four hours online every day. Um, so, and that was in 2017, those, those numbers have probably ratcheted up by now. But I think that's kind of worth noting because I do think that there's this persistent myth that just because someone is a digital native, right? They have all this online savvy and they know how to do all this stuff with digital tools and and that's not true you know being a digital native really just means you were born after the internet became a thing you know it's not it, it doesn't mean that you're better with technology or have all these like innate skills with tech and, and digital things so 25 Stanford students 10 history professors so these are PhD level history professors teaching and researching at the university level, 10 fact checkers. So professional fact checkers who work for news organizations who have to quickly check facts to make sure that um, news organizations are, are putting the correct information online. So 
the first task, and I'm just going to talk about one task. I'm not going to talk about all three of them. First task is they were given two articles and they had to, they had about 10 or 15 minutes, I think, to evaluate these two online articles. And they had to say, is one more reliable or are they about the same? The articles, one was from the American Academy of Pediatricians. The other was from the American College of Pediatricians. They were both on the topic of online bullying. Both articles, both websites looked great, you know, very professional, authored, sourced articles, professionally written. Um, both websites are .orgs, which is, again, another persistent myth. You know, a .org is an open and unrestricted domain. The three of us could go register a .org right now. It's completely meaningless. It doesn't give your website any more credibility. Um, on the face, these articles looked really good and the sites looked really good. Um, however, the American Academy of Pediatri Pediatricians, okay, this is the recognized professional association of U.S. pediatricians. There's like 64 plus thousand members. They um, produce the periodical, the peer-reviewed journal called Pediatrics, which is a very rigorous, you know, top-notch peer-reviewed journal. The American College of Pediatricians is a recognized hate group. They're a anti-LGBTQ um, hate group recognized by Southern Poverty Law, ACLU, you know, anti-same-sex marriage, anti-same-sex adoption, lots of fighting against trans rights. So two really different sites, one hate group, the other, the premier professional association for pediatricians. So the results of this were really shocking. This is what really like sent those shock waves through our community. I, I need you to know that I am horrified about what I'm about to hear. Like I'm really, really nervous. So you should be. Yeah. Okay, yeah you good. should be. Yeah. As a, as a professor, you should be. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, wait. So the students, um, so again, they were asked, is one more reliable? Are they the same? The students, 20% of them said the American Academy was the, the actual, the legit group, the Academy was better. 64% um, said the college, the hate group was better. And 16% said they were about the same. This is where both of you should be a little concerned. The professors were pretty much split down the middle. Half of them thought that the academy was more reliable. 40% said there was no difference. And then 10 said that the hate group was actually better. Um, they evaluated the sites in almost the same way. Those two groups, the students and the professors, did not leave the site. They just looked at the article. They looked to see like, oh, okay, does this look professional? Um, the faculty, the history professors very much focused on the fact that each article was citing sources and used professional language. The students were a little more focused on, well, there's no ads on this site and it looks really professional and it's a .org. So it was a real mixed bag. Um, I, none of the students discovered that the college was a hate group. And I think like two of the 10 professors actually figured out that the American College of Pediatrician is a, is a recognized hate group. 
the fact checkers, 100% of them got it right. And they got it right almost immediately. Like they knew right away, they, the American College of Pediatricians is a hate group. And the other one is the actual professional organization for pediatricians. And they, yeah, they did this through, um, they, they hardly spent any time on the site at all. They opened up tabs and they started searching for the organizations. And almost immediately, if you Google the American College of Pediatricians, you know, Southern Poverty Law is on the first set of results. ACLU is on the first set of results telling you about the organization. I, I, will, I will admit to both being surprised and not surprised. I think in some ways I'm, I'm not surprised by the outcome I am surprised by the process, I think. I am surprised to hear that they that those other groups didn't go do, didn't go didn't leave the website. That that is uh, a little bit shocking to me. It, it feels like that's the first thing I would do, but then again, this is why we do research, right? So, um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I am surprised not necessarily by the outcome, but by the by the lack of effort, I guess. You know, at this point, this is a five-year-old study. So, I mean, I think people's research skills have gotten sharper and maybe at like the professional level. I think if we would redo this, I, I would hope that at least more of the that faculty group would be doing some lateral reading. But I mean, anecdotally, as a librarian who watches people search for things quite a bit and evaluate things, this is still how students are evaluating websites. They're still just looking at the site is it professional language? Are there a lot of ads? It's, it's, it hasn't, the, the wave hasn't swept through yet to do lateral reading. I sort of hear you, hear you in that moment making an argument against the concept of digital natives, which I think is a good thing and that the, that the experience with the internet is not one based on knowledge, like, developing skills that it's really much more about ease. If anything, what we've done is created an environment that shortens the time and you know makes everything easier. So if anything, if you're a digital digital native, you're used to you expect ease of use more than you do quality of anything. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, underline that. Yes, that's exactly what people expect. The, I think the younger you are, the easier you think things should be. And that, in that, I mean, and that's too much of a generalization. But yes, yeah. the internet makes things really easy to a fault. Yeah, it is. There is. It's definitely a generalization. I, it's, but it's still like, I've, I, I remember hearing digital natives as like a compliment. Like this is a positive. This has positive connotations, and it. I see that shifting somewhat and which I think is a good thing. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So when you, you say this study, you know, you said you changed the way librarians think about and teach web evaluation. How so? What are some of the approaches that you take now that you didn't prior to this study? Sure. I think um, we used to be just a little too simplistic. We tried to give people kind of a checklist that they could go down. Like, is it current? Is it um, relevant to your topic? Is There's a whole little like little ticky box you could just check off. We were uh, not paying attention to the context of the information. So, okay, you have an article, its context is who is it published by? Who's this publisher? 
Um, we, I talk a lot about who's the author. So do research on the author, do research on the website itself. So that is the shift of we've, we've shifted to this concept of don't really spend too much time looking at the thing itself at first. First, do your quick um, evaluation of whether that author has some authority, whether the website has authority, whether there's any red flags when you run some quick searches on them. Then go back and start looking at things like, is it properly sourced? You know, is it, is it professionally written? Does it help your topic? You know, David Velker, I mean, this is a long time ago. So David is a previous guest on this. He was last year's, uh, the chair of last year's Common Cause. Um, I remember he, he was part of a presentation where um, they were doing think alouds. I'm curious to hear what you think about this approach, but it was where they would, they, it was a, a teaching technique where um, the faculty member would, uh, or excuse me, or students, anyone would, but uh, like take a reading and as they were reading through it, they would vocalize the thoughts they were having as part of it. And I remember getting a chance to see him do this as part of a, a demonstration where he was handed a bunch of articles and said, okay, talk through this. And one of the things that I remember him doing actually is setting some aside and saying, I don't, I don't trust this author. I'm not even going to read these, you know, or something like that, that he essentially, because he had background with that, or I don't trust the source. And I wonder from a, not necessarily that, like that, that response, but I wonder from a, as a teaching technique, if there's some value in, it would be really interesting to me to watch fact checkers do their work, to have them uh, to be able to see sort of what process they go through and kind of have that think aloud uh, sort of component. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I do. Um, okay. So you said, you know, David just looked at some of these articles and said, nope, not this person. I, I know this person's work and this is a big no. Well, you know, so then that goes back to Chuck's comment of, okay, if you're, you're a certain age you don't have that. You don't, yeah. you don't, you don't know that this person's work isn't something that you should spend time looking at. So, I mean, teaching these kind of lateral evaluation skills gets even more important. I think there's also things, you know, you don't, you don't recognize those, uh, you know, the dog whistles. If you go to the American College of Pediatrics and look at their about site, you know, they, call themselves a family first site. Well, okay, I'm 50 years old. I know exactly what that means. You know, it's uh, someone who's 18, 19, 20 probably doesn't. So that's mm -hmm. definitely part of it. You don't have that experience. So you have to figure out some techniques to um, fill that gap until you have some more experience. You know, that's really interesting. Like I, in everything that we talked about so far, like I'm, you know, so misinformation is a problem, right? And it's deliberate at times. And so in my head, I, I promise I'll get to a question here. And so in my head, I'm thinking, well, how do you know your enemy in this case, right? Like, how do you, how do you know the enemy? And you can think about deliberate misinformation, people who know they're lying and want to be lying and misinforming you and going about doing that, which you know, it has a human agency to it, right? And so what I'm thinking about getting to a question is like, in terms of your work and how we frame talking about this, that there's also a non-human agency, like, is there an algorithmic component to this? Like, 
how search results come back. That to me, there feels like if I could invent a term that there's an algorithmic complicity to the misinformation that we have. And so maybe people should pay more attention to, you know, when people bring Google or Facebook to Capitol Hill that, you know, that they're in some ways talking about algorithms and returns. Like I learned a little bit about Google search results and power law dynamics and how they return the same amount of high results, but like you can pay for those too, you know, that there's a, there's a pay element to that. And I don't do, do algorithms work into your thinking at all. And yeah, if you could say something about, sorry, it took a long time. No, no. Yeah. That's, I I like hearing your thoughts on that. And I like the direction you're headed in and yes, they absolutely do. Um, People get different search results depending on how their privacy settings are. That's one thing you can really protect yourself from creating a, you know, we call it like an, like an echo chamber or an information bubble. Um, if you make sure that your privacy settings are at a certain higher level, um, that's a lot of the responsibility is on the individual. There's been very little like federal oversight with digital privacy. And I think that's very intentional because digital privacy does not benefit anyone making money. So people make money if you have less private you know, an internet presence. So it's, it's something I'd like to learn more about. So like the legislation surrounding digital privacy is pretty complicated. It's pretty patchwork right now, pretty much at a state level. Um, It's, it needs more um, federal leadership, I think. And it needs to like move from this thing rooted in capitalism and, um, gives us a little more protection as citizens citizens and keeps us a little, you know, the, the burden is a little less on us. Yeah. That, yeah. Like, that was, I answered that way too long. Yes. No, the humanities correct. person in me is like, you know, so I used to work in digital humanities back in the day and should probably get back to that sometime, but like thinking that if this isn't happening already, that, that there could be some kind of potential there for like, a defensive algorithm, like in the way that people created web browsers to prevent tracking in certain instances that where you could, you know, the librarians of the world unite and create a defensive algorithm that re-scrambles Google results in a way that prioritizes, say, peer review over not or something. But like, I wonder if there's a battle to be fought on the creation side of making tools, you know, other than educating people, which is super important, but also tools that facilitate that in some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that would be great. <laughs> you know, this is the, the thing that one of the things I've been, I've been reflecting on with this conference and just this work in general is I am, a, I am mildly, moderately anxious about putting so much of the onus of responsibility on the, uh, this isn't the right word, but the consumer of information, right? Maybe it is the right word, but you know that, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately and with the pandemic in particular, because, you know, it's, it's very easy for me uh, to be angry at people who aren't making great choices right now during the pandemic. Um, be, and they're making those choices based on poor information and, and to say, oh, why are people 
to be honest, why are people so dumb, right? Why is this happening? But the truth is, you know, when we're talking about people who are exposed to very, very, very different information than I am, who are seeing very different quote unquote facts, it is, it ends up, it is hard for me to really be angry at them. And, th- and, and I realized my, a lot of my anger should be directed at the sources of that misinformation than on the people who have been fed that misinformation. And I guess one of the things that I, to, to get to my, my bigger point is, and, and to talk about what Chuck just said is some of this, some of what we need to do is not just inform and educate consumers, it's restructure the systems that are allowing for this. Because many of the people that I'm angry at right now are really victims of a, of a poorly structured system and are victims of those algorithms and so on. And that we might be asking too much of people when we say, you can't, you got to do all of this work to uh, make sure you're not. Uh, you know, yeah, I used to lives. give an, I used to give an assignment when uh, doing writing class where the students had to do research and they were not allowed to use any results from the first page of a Google search. So they had to at least go by the first page, you know, but uh, Ryan, to your point, like, I, I don't think as a whole, and I'll just speak maybe globally, but in this country for sure, is that the curation of information has moved out of institutions with actual written codes of ethics to institutions that do not have any codes of ethics. And there, there's something to that. We just don't, you know, I think there's a question to be asked about how much we care about the health of our institutions, but we've certainly been dominated by a political class that supports the private sector or profit-making over non in that case with institutions. And yeah, I, so anyway, you got me thinking about that. Renee, we haven't yet talked about your second work, and I really want to. So you also shared with us the, the framework for information literacy for high, higher education. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. I know we're probably running out of time, so I'll try to do that quickly. But the framework for information literacy for higher education is basically is a set of threshold concepts. And I know most disciplines, most you know fields have threshold concepts. It's a thing that once you understand it, it really changes very changes your thinking on that topic. It kind of crystallizes things for you. There's um, one I really want to talk about just based on what the two of you were just talking about um, is one of the frames is called um, scholarship as conversation. So the threshold concept of that is that you understand that research is a conversation and it has it has a past and it has a future. It's not this static fixed fact. And uh, folks out there who don't haven't gone past that threshold concept of research is a conversation um, may look at the changing nature of research and how, um, well, okay, you said this a year ago, now you're saying something else. Aren't you supposed to be this super smart guy? Why are you changing your mind? Um, that's a problem, right? So people who don't understand that like research is this whole big, long conversation. And when you understand that like in a very um, basic, fundamental way, um, research and looking at 
evidence-based decision-making kind of becomes your, your default because you understand how that information is produced and you get that it's going to change. And that's, uh, that's something that really isn't taught to everybody, you know, not lots of people like don't get that. And I think lots of people outside of the academy don't understand that. And that's, that's not a good thing. Renee, do you you know that book? um, I'm trying to remember the title. Is it They Say, I Say, like I used to use this in my writing classes, but it was kind of, that was the thrust of the whole book that you were joining an ongoing conversation and you had a duty to get caught up on some of the discussion before you added to it. And it was just, I think it was called They Say, I Say or something like that. Anyway, just... um, So that's my way of saying I really believe in what you just said. (laughs) Good. Yeah, right. I mean, and it is it's a it's a kind of a difficult concept to wrap your mind around and until you kind of maybe live it as a student of a discipline. Right. Until you can say I can trace the thinking of my discipline on this one topic and it changes because of research studies or because of some seminal work that got put out. It's yeah. Well, you know. Uh, I, I think we can really see where this has reared its ugly head over the last year, right? I mean, you can use it, let's, we can use masks as an example where the original thinking was, hey, we don't need you to wear masks right now, right? Way back in April of 20, um, you know, there, or March of 20, they were sort of saying, don't do that. And part of that was because they wanted to, um, they didn't want people to buy them all up. They didn't have that many. But then, that recommendation shifted. And I have heard many, many people say, you know what, the stuff on masks keeps changing. That's why I don't wear it. They don't know what they're talking about, you know, and, and not recognizing that like, no, the, the science changed, right. Our understanding of the virus changed and, and, um, and that, and so that's one way I think we're really seeing this happen. The other thing I would say, so there's this guy, um, real quick, uh, there's this guy, his name is Scott Lilienfeld. He passed away, he's a psychologist. He passed away uh, about a year ago. And he, he wrote a book called 50 Pop Psychology Myths. And he was actually at UW-Green Bay speaking at one point about sort of science and teaching scientific methods, the scientific method. And one of the things I noticed, and I think this is really important and sort of speaks to some of the issues we have is whenever he talked about scientific findings, he always said, yeah, and so this is probably true, right? So he would he would sort of have a little caveat there, or he would qualify things, his the results of studies with it's probably true that this that the world is this way. And it and I, I thought about the frankly, the how that that phrasing, even though he's right, and that is how we should phrase scientific findings, because we can't be certain how that phrasing is sometimes problematic because the other side isn't qualifying their statements, right? <laughs> and so, you know, he's he's the one who's saying, well, it's, you know, yeah, this finding is probably accurate. And that makes it sound like we're not really sure. Whereas, you know, the opposition doesn't qualify it that way. And so it just got me thinking about how sometimes being a responsible describer of science, uh, you know, how sometimes being responsible ends up harming the overall message, which is scary. Um, and it, it goes also goes back to what Chuck said before about us having standards of ethics where the other groups maybe don't. And there should be no such thing as sides. This is why sides is a problem. Like, right, good, fair, 
Fair. You know, even like point of even points of view in a spatial metaphor almost work better that you're out somewhere and you're looking at something because then I could just say, yes, your point of view is completely obstructed, right. <laughs> you know, or something like that. Yeah. And I will also say on the on the topic of sides quickly that I don't necessarily object to the idea that there are sides, but I object to the idea that there's only two, right? <laughs> Issues have many, many, many sides. The only sides I care about are like fries. <laughs> Cheese curds. Yeah, that's it. Those are the sides I care right. about. R Renee, anything else from the frame? I will share the link you sent with us with listeners, but anything else we should know about the information literacy uh, for higher education framework? Yeah, I think share the link. Um, there's some interesting stuff in there. It's a lot of things that we bring into the classroom. You know, the first one is this uh, uh, concept of authorities, constructed and contextual. That's basically my entire first year seminar. <laughs> it's really, it's, it's, it's an interesting, at least to me, I guess, because I'm a librarian document to read through. But yeah, I think. I'm convinced it's interesting to a lot of people. So not just, not just to librarians, but um, you know what, I meant to do this maybe in the last episode, but maybe in the, I can't remember. Um, but I wanted to just put out a, a call that having Renee or anyone from her team come speak to your classes for any uh, UWGB instructors who are listening, you should do that. Um, if you, if you, um, I have, this is a, was a staple of my research methods class when I was teaching that as well as my, um, uh, my first year seminar and I learned something every time, and I think we, I probably have had this, we've pro probably had someone from your team in class 15, 20 times, and I, I learned something every single time. It's, it's always fascinating. My students love it, so um, definitely make use of the library. I don't want to increase your workload anymore than it already is, Renee, but I also- I'll do it. Oh, yeah. perfect. See, <laughs> see how much she wants you to do this? Um, <laughs> anything else we should touch on before we finish up? I think I'm good. I've had a really good time chatting with both of you today. I am great. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so, so very pleased that you took the time with us today and also that you're you're working with me on this conference. Um, it is it has been a joy the last hour, but also just the last, I guess we started this at the beginning of the summer, uh, the work together, and I really appreciate it. So thank you for everything. Um, to learn more about Renee and the Common Cause Conference, you should check out uwgb.edu slash common dash cause, that's C-A-H-S-S. -S. Um, you can follow me if you want. I'm at Anger Professor on all the social media places. You can also follow the Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at UW-Green Bay at U-W-G-B-C-A-H-S-S. They're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Kelsey's work is fabulous. You should check that out. Cannonball is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salek. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Weiss, and our music was created by our very own Chuck Ryback. Special thanks also to our guest, Renee Edinger. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with my co-host, Chuck Ryback. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.